Blog Talk Radio. Kingway, Fox, Beer, Locker's acting very weird. Captain Pike, Cisco's wife, Klingons, and the afterlife. Boimler, Tendy's dog, Ransom is very hot. Four Drive, Black Alert, Giorgio has gone berserk. Teacher, bad left, Edward is an idiot, Fuck is dead, Wolf is wed, Chekhov's wearing red. Data's cat, Kempak's cat, you have said enough of that. Beam me up, make it so, everybody let's go. We talk about the theory, you can join us live by picking up your phone now. We talk about the theory, we're coming to you on your streaming services now. We talk about the theory. Well, good evening, Trekkies and Trekkers around the globe. It is Thursday night at 7.30 Eastern Daylight Savings Time. I'm your host, Uncle Jim, and that means it's time for another awesome episode of Trek Talking. But before we dive into all the action and all the news, I have to introduce my Trek Spurt. Let's start off with Charles. He's out in Las Vegas. How are you doing tonight, Charles? Uh, I'm doing good. I'm kind of enjoying our crazy spring weather. Of it. Is it cold? Is it warm? Is it windy? Is it dry? Is it rainy? We don't know. You're not alone. You're not alone in that, Charles. I've been trying to enjoy patio weather, and it's like okay, one some days I can, some days I can't. But next week, I hear we're going to get some high seventies, maybe eighties, and I can get some painting done on the patio. Oh, it's been it's been gorgeous here in Vermont. It, it peaked at seventy degrees, a nice nice breeze. Oh, it's beautiful. Got all the windows open. Sat outside with the dog. Read some books on my new Kindle. Uh, I was having a great day. Uh, anyways, uh, we also have with my other Trek spurt, Eric. And Eric is out in Portland. How are you doing tonight, Eric? Well, I am doing just great. Uh, it is a little cool, cooler out here, about 52 degrees and slightly drizzly, but that's par for the course for a, a beautiful northwestern spring. So I'm having a good day. I consider it nice outside. And uh I'm excited we get to talk about comics and some of these fun, fun articles tonight. It's going to be a blast. Yeah, we, 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 the show is live. We had a little bit of technical difficulties. When I say literally before we went on air, uh, <laughs> seconds. <laughs> seconds. It was pretty close. It was pretty close. You all <laughs> almost had a little adventure with us. <laughs> yeah, it, it happened almost instantaneously. So we got it all fixed. So we're off to a good start. So tonight on a very special, very extended episode of Comics Corner, we're going to be talking about Star Trek Voyager 7's Reckoning, the last two issues, three and four, and that four-issue miniseries. So you guys want to stay tuned for that. Our phone number here is 646-668-2433. Give us a call and join the conversation. We would absolutely love to have you along for the ride. We currently have 42,000 followers on our Facebook page. That's up 2,000 from last week, for those of you who are counting. So if you'd like to join our ever-expanding Star Trek family, head over to Facebook.com backslash Trek Talking and beyond. You have to spell that all out. And uh, give us a like, give us a follow, and tell us where you're from. Every week we go around the globe with the numbers and uh, – 
We'd love to add you to that. So, Eric, why don't we dive right in and start off with our numbers? You better believe it. So, as always, about three-quarters of our listeners come from the United States, where we broadcast from in what I like to call the uh, triangle of awesomeness. Uh, But as for our international (laughs) listeners, uh, leading the pack for yet another week in a row here, we've got the UK with 5.18% of our listeners. And you know what, guys? 5.18% is a new record for international listeners. Can you believe that? The UK is doing it. That's incredible. That's just awesome. That's so cool. And we really, you know, I know the, uh, you know, we have several friends over there in the UK. We've had a few folks from the UK on our show before. Perhaps the word is spreading a little bit. So thank you so much, everyone in the UK who's listening to us right now and who downloads our show when we're not broadcasting live. In our number two spot, we have the folks down under Australia with uh, 3.95% of our listeners. That's up just a scotch from last week, too. So international listeners are, uh, are going up. In our number three spot, brothers and sisters to the north, Canada, with 3.03% of our listeners. That is also up from last week. In our number four spot, hold and steady, Norway, just about where they were last week, 2.55% of our listeners come from Norway. So thank you, folks from Norway. And in that number five spot uh, for, I believe, maybe only the second week in a row here, Germany is holding steady with 1.31% of our listeners. So thank you, all of you listeners from Deutschland. We love you, too. Uh, We know you're right in the center of Europe there, and it's awesome to have your support for our podcast. Isn't it, Jim? I love Germany. Oh, oh, yeah. It's it's awesome to have them all with us. And uh, as I said earlier, if you'd like to hear your name and a shout-out, we do shout-outs every week. And what we do is you'll see the Live Long and Prosper on our page it's pinned right to the top tell us where you're listening from and every week i pick out 15 lucky listeners if there's a heart next to your name from trek talk and that means that i picked your name and you're going to be mentioned in a fan shout out by name and so this is the part of the show where we say thank you to our fans individually instead of by country so eric why don't you get us started with our fan shout outs for this week You better believe it. Our very first fan shout-out this week goes out to Steve Kaufelt, who is from Cardiff, Ontario, uh, one of those folks up there in Canada. So, Steve, man, thank you for listening, and thanks for interacting with us on our Facebook page. We are so happy to have you here with us. Really appreciate your support. Jacqueline Rocha, you are also here. You are from Campanhas in San Paulo, Brazil. Yes, that's right, from South America, Jacqueline Rocha. Thank you so much for listening to us as well. Jesse Pilali, thank you very much. Guess where you're from? Trinidad in the West Indies. That, I believe, is the very first time that we have had anyone from Trinidad, or at least the first time I can remember. So, Jesse Pilali, thank you so much for listening to us way, way down in that little tiny island in that part of the Pacific. I love it. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> so cool. Yeah, I was going to ask you guys. That does not sound familiar. I think that's the first. I that, think it is. I, I, I certainly don't remember offhand uh, any time in the last four years, three, four years here. So, uh, you know, anybody from that country. So, wow, Jesse, pulling a new one. Thank you. <laughs> uh, we're also saying hello and sending out a big thank you to Joao Paulo Castonia from Vitoria ES in Brazil, another Brazilian. Wow, that's cool. I got two on my list. 
Also, hello and thank you so much to Ronald Miller from right up here in the great Northwest in Forks, Washington. Charles, who's on your list this week? Well, we're going to start right off with Governor Edwards. He's coming from Preston, Lancaster, England. Oh, I'd love to spend some time in England. Lewis Peterson from Red Wing, Minnesota. We got Anthony Edmonds from Essex, UK. Francine Milford from Lakeford, Florida. Oh, out in Mark's part of the country. Yep. And from Albuquerque, New Mexico, Felicia Felicia Suarez. Welcome, welcome. And then I think uh, Jim's got some, too. Yep, I've got a couple. We're going to wrap it up. Uh, We'd like to say hello and thank you to Yvonne Davis from Northeast UK. Uh, We'd like to say kapla to Alexander Fursky from Yugoslavia. Have we ever had a Yugoslavian before? Don't think that's uh, no, that's a new one too. So how about that, Trinidad and Yugoslavia? That's that's amazing. Yeah, I, th- I thought that was a new one. Uh, <laughs> we'd like to say thank you to Espriana Lidamosa um, from Huntsville, Alabama. We'd also like to say thank you to Karen Swain from Nova Scotia, Canada's Ocean Playground. Mm, Never been so to Nova true. Scotia. Like to go there, so but never have been there. And last, but definitely not least, in my neck of the woods, we like to say thank you to Lenny Menendez from Rockland, New York. So thank you to each and every one of you guys for listening. We really appreciate it. It means so much to us that you take the time to go to our Facebook page and tell us where you're from, and we return that favor by saying thank you live on the air. So thank you to each and every one of you guys. It's very important to us. And now we do our Star Trek birthdays. That was not a Klingon song. And usually we start off with our remembrances, and that would be for people who are no longer with us. And for that, we turn to Eric. So, Eric, you want to get us started? Yeah, I absolutely do. And our our very first uh, remembrance this week goes out to somebody. I'm going to say his first name. I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing it correctly, though, so I apologize if I'm getting it wrong. But I'm going to pronounce it T-Gay Andrews. He actually played the Klingon Crass in the TOS episode Friday's Child. You would definitely recognize him as the one Klingon who had a beard but not a mustache and was kind of balding a little bit. <laughs> Didn't exactly look <laughs> right. for Klingon. <laughs> but T.J. Andrews did a great job in that role uh, in Friday's Child. So uh, we're saying happy birthday and sending out our remembrances to him today. We're also saying happy birthday and sending out our remembrances to Hagen Beggs who played Lieutenant Hansen uh, in TOS uh, in several episodes in the Menagerie 1 and 2, Court Martial, um, one of many helmsmen that the uh, TOS Enterprise would have kind of prior to Sulu becoming the regular guy uh, at the helm. 
Um, so he appeared in a few different episodes, and uh, Hagen Beggs did a great job with Lieutenant Hansen. So we're saying happy birthday and sending out our love to his family this week. We're also saying happy birthday and sending remembrances out to Logan Ramsey, who played uh, Claudius Marcus in the TOS episode Bread and Circuses. Now, that's important uh, to know that that is actually proconsul Claudius Marcus, because uh, that is not the gladiator Claudius Marcus. Uh, this one that you're thinking of is the one who I think of as actually a Romulan. I mean, he's not he's not Romulan, but he, you know, you'll remember that that episode uh, has uh, Romans from an empire that never fell, effectively. And so I like to think of them as kind of proto-Romulans and what Romulans would become. So Logan Ramsey playing the part of Claudius Marcus. Great job there. Uh, Richard Carlyle this week, uh, who played Lieutenant Carl Yeager in the TOS episode, The Squire of Gothos, would have had a birthday. Uh, another one of our kind of uh, lieutenants who came and went in just one episode, but uh, made an impact while they were there. So happy birthday, Richard Carlyle. We're also saying happy birthday and sending out our remembrances to Karen Steele, who played the character Eve McCuron on the TOS episode, Mud's Women. Um, she is actually the one who uh, is seen, uh, you know, rapidly aged at one point uh, as part of that episode. I will not reveal too much in case you haven't seen it, but uh, she, I think, uh, is kind of one of those classic TOS um, beauties. Definitely did a great job in that role. Great actress, um, Karen Steele. We do miss her. And uh, we have a very big one that I think much everyone has heard of this person. Um, I would say probably one of the most recognized writers from back in the TOS days. And yet, isn't it funny that she had to use a, uh, a, a fake name to get herself published? We, of course, are talking about Dorothy D.C. Fontana, who uh, had to sort of hide her identity as a woman back in the days uh, to get her stuff up on the screen. And yet she wrote probably some of the best episodes of TOS um, that anybody's ever seen. Wouldn't you guys agree? Yeah. Oh, absolutely. She also yeah. worked on uh, TNG and Deep Space Nine as well, which is actually pretty cool. Talk about a lasting yeah. Star Trek legacy for sure. Didn't she also oh, yeah. work on a couple of uh, fan films, too? Yeah, I think yeah. she may have. And the animated series as well. All over the place. So DC yeah. Fontana, her loss was definitely felt in the community uh, when we lost her. Uh, and uh, she is still missed. Uh, but it's great that we have her work out there to go back and kind of see what some of the best in Star Trek uh, really looks like. So happy birthday and and our love and remembrances go out this week to uh, D.C. Fontana. Charles, why don't you get us started with the birthdays of the folks who are still with us? All right. Well, let's start off with Marjorie Mohan, who played Freya in Voyager Hero and Demon. Lark Forey played Le- uh, Leanne in DS9's episode Life Support. Sabrina LeBeouf played Ensign in TNG's Gambit Parts 1 and 2. 
Vanessa Brandt played the adult version of Naomi Wildman. Voyage's episode Shattered. And we've got Anthony Tobongas played the first Maj Sahal in Voyager in about five episodes. And a couple of them I'm glad Jim let me have. We got Connor Tanier, who played Charles Tip Tucker, the third, in the Anna series Enterprise. Great and character. then one Great that's character. definitely one of my favorite characters. In the TNG series, in DS9, in Voyager, in Low, Lower Deck. Wait a minute, Subcommander Charles. Who played that many roles? Of course we're talking about Q. And our favorite, John Delancey, who himself is a character. And we love what he did with the character Q. And across and, the four different series. Mm-hmm. And hopefully we'll be adding Star Trek four. Picard to that list, we hope. We hope. We shall see. And I got to tell you guys a story about John Delancey, because you know how I love to tell stories. When you're long on the tooth, you have a lot of stories to tell. So... Uh, first season of TNG, right after Tashi R was killed, John Delancey was at a convention up in Syracuse, New York, and me and the wife, my girlfriend at the time, we drove up to Syracuse to see John Delancey. We got up there, and he was funny. He was just, he's Q. If, if you've ever met John Delancey, yeah, he's pretty much <laughs> Q. I mean, that's, <laughs> he's Q. Um, and uh, somebody asked him in the audience, they said, uh, will Q ever bring back Tashi R? And John Delancey's answer was, yes, but I'm going to keep her for myself. (laughs) (laughs) So (laughs) that's what John Delancey said about Tashi R. It's a very Q answer, I think. Yeah. Yeah, it it was funny. It was really funny. (laughs) He's a great, great guy. Good chance of getting Q and Q2 together on the same stage. Mm. Oh, those two are yeah. Ryan. You too. <laughs> so we'll have to see. We'll have to see what happens. I I have a sneaking suspicion that we might see him show up on Picard, but uh, that's just I have no fact to base that on. But I think he will. So, anyways, <laughs> so on to our birthdays. I've got a I've got a rather long but distinguished list um as i said we had some technical difficulties before the show uh some of the birthdays that i posted didn't get posted and we had to kind of cut and paste it back together literally seconds before the show so some of these uh ended up on my list and didn't end up on charles's list and got mixed up so i was gonna have to go with what we got here in front of us so first off we'd like to say happy birthday to robert schlenken who played lieutenant commander dexter remick in the tng episode coming of age we hated him. We hated him, if you don't remember. Yeah, so bad. And later, <laughs> he came back in conspiracy, and he justified our hatred because Picard and Riker got to blow his head off with phasers, and he was filled with little purple bugs. <laughs> you yep. guys remember that one. Turns out so, he was uh, a bad guy. He was a bad guy. <laughs> so uh, great, great character, uh, great couple of episodes. 
Uh, this next one here I had originally put in Charles's list, and it ended up in mine. Uh, Brian Brophy, who played Commander Bruce Maddox in the TNG episode Measure of a Man, which we talked about a couple of shows ago, not the Bruce Maddox that was killed on Picard. They had a different actor play the character. I don't know why, but they did. Um, so happy birthday to Brian Brophy. I would also like to say happy birthday to Abby Bramell, who played Perseus in the Enterprise Station 12 and the Augments. If you remember, she was the the leader of the Augments that kicked all those Klingons' butts and was basically a badass. Um, mm-hmm. If you saw that episode, if you saw that, that uh, trilogy from Enterprise, you would definitely remember who she is. So happy birthday to Abby. Okay, now there's really no way to break up the rest of them because they're all completely awesome and totally <laughs> integral yeah. and important to the world of Star Trek. Um, I, I, put, I put a couple of these in Charles's list, but they ended up in mine. I apologize. So uh, we'll start off with the first one, who isn't an actor, but Michael oh. Westmore. Now, without Michael Westmore, we wouldn't have Warp. We wouldn't have the, the Zindi. We wouldn't have so many of the characters that we've known to love on Star Trek. Uh, he's a makeup extraordinaire artist. He created so many of the awesome aliens and makeup that we see on Star Trek that there's too many to name. But yeah. like Michael Westmore, uh, happy birthday and thank you for all the awesome memories that you've created for us through Star Trek. The next one I think is one of my favorite engineers. Um, well, yeah, I think she's one of my favorite. I, I love her, her dry humor. I love her, her crass attitude that she throws around um, at, at, at Stamets in particular, but I like, I just like her. Uh, I think she's a brilliant engineer. I think she's on par with, Scotty. I mean, the way she was keeping people alive the first time we see her, she built the four little Huey, Dewey, and Louie droids there, um, and her she's got this dry sense of humor, and she just brings so much to Star Trek Discovery uh, in the character of Jet Reno, and of course I'm talking about the awesome Tig Natero. Man, is she funny. Hilarious. And uh, don't worry, guys, she is going to be in Season four, if you, a couple of shows ago, we read an interview with her, and uh, she said she was driving up to Canada because she didn't want to fly. She was driving up to Toronto to film her scene. So that's definitely confirmation that we will see more of Jet Reno in season four, which is great because I just love Jet Reno. So, you know, yeah. What do you guys think? Do you guys like Jet Reno? Yeah, she's pretty cool. She, I, you know, it's interesting because I feel like she's a character that could not have existed in previous versions of Star Trek because her kind of sharp sassiness, I feel like, is particularly 21st century. Like, I think it, I think it fits modern Star Trek, and I don't know that, that she would have been as awesome of a character because she kind of combines the, like, dryness of Bones, but, like, she, but she has more edge to her also, but then she has the brilliance of somebody like a, I mean, we haven't really seen her pull full Scotties yet, but we certainly have seen her pull some pretty amazing stuff. I would love to see more about her character just developed. 
I'd love to know more about her background, the whole deal. Yeah, yeah I, I agree. Absolutely. She's she's great. So listen, guys, we have to take our very first commercial break of the night for our listeners at Odyssey Radio. Just hang in there. For the rest of you guys, we're going to hear a, a commercial spot here that I just pulled um, for Lower Decks coming to Blu-ray. I just want to say that if you are having an event or if you run a store or you know someone that runs a store or you want to get the word out and you like to hear your commercial right here, right now, uh, contact us on our Facebook page and we'll tell you how to make that happen. Our podcast goes out global. We have, as you hear, over 40,000 listeners. So um, your business, your concert, your event, your convention can reach all those people, and it will be here immortalized. Every time someone listens to our podcast on a download, they will hear your spot. So don't run away. Walk. Don't run to the bathroom. We'll be right back after this very quick, yet very important, commercial break. We're more like the cool, scrappy underdogs of the shit. We're actually way down here. Coming soon to Blu-ray and DVD. Ensign, the bridge is yours. Maintain course. From the writer and executive producer of Rick and Morty. Tell me what your bridge crew did. We're Lower Decks. No one ever tells us what's going on. Star Trek Lower Decks Season 1. We get to focus on the unsung heroes of Starfleet. Banana. Huh. Ah, Freaking burn me. With two hours of special features. Everybody working on Lower Decks wants to make the best show possible. One episode takes about a year. Are you serious? Including cast interviews. I'm Tony Newsom. Zach Quaid. I'm Jerry O'Connell. If I were to sum up the first season, it would be double fixed to cut much. Deleted and extended scenes. It's not a race. Easter egg. We're going to get the fuck helmet in there. It is fun to put in Easter eggs. And so much more. Mariner drives her captain crazy. Live long and prosper. Don't you give me that sarcastic Vulcan salute. Go big. This is going to be awesome. Go bull. I am the And bring home. This is something you've never seen before. Star Trek Lower Decks Season 1. Long range sensors have located a very sexy. <gasps> No, definitely no. no. Own it on DVD, Blu-ray, and Blu-ray Steelbook. Yes. Awesome, awesome series. I love it. Welcome back, guys. We're continuing on with our birthdays, and we've got some big ones here. So I was kind of debating on which order to put these in. I always save the Klingons for last. I could not do that this week, though, for various reasons. So let's say happy birthday to Michael Burnham herself, the very own Soniqua Martin-Green, just call her captain, of the USS Discovery. Let's fly. Happy birthday to Soniqua Martin-Green. And I think the Klingon, well, yeah, the Klingon of all Klingons. I think the Klingon that started it all, the Klingon with the eyes, the man, the myth, the legend, Robert O'Reilly Gowron. Uh, I had him way, way back in uh, 1993 or 92. I had him at his very first Star Trek convention, and he wasn't sure people would come to see him. No one knew who he was, blah, 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 but guess what? They loved him. Galron was a huge hit, and people came from everywhere to meet Robert O'Reilly, um, a.k.a. Galron. So happy birthday, and kabla. To the man himself, Gowron, Robert O'Reilly. Have you guys ever met Robert O'Reilly? Yes. Oh, what did I you met think about him? Together in the convention. Well, okay. we, we had we had them on. Okay, 
Let's give uh, fans a little bit of a history look. Him decided to try getting a Klingon to our show one day. We end up with two Klingons, including Robert O'Reilly. Jim and I didn't get yet to say much. I know we didn't. took over our show, and we just sat in the background and listened to the conversation. That's right. You get those two. You get those two around, and you might have trouble getting a word in edgewise. I have yeah, yet to right. make a. I have yet chance to actually get to see Klingon karaoke in person. But I can just imagine what that is like. Yeah, that would be awesome. We'll leave it at that. So, guys, we saved perhaps uh, the biggest, the best, the legend himself. I think um, without him, I don't, well, yeah, I don't think we'd have Star Trek without him. I think he was the face of Star Trek for so long, uh, 55 years coming up on. And uh, I think that he made Star Trek with his, with his overacting techniques. I think he made <laughs> Star Trek what it is today. And he turned 90 years old this week, a uh, legend in himself. I met him at a convention, and, I, um, yeah, that's, I just want to leave it at that. I wasn't impressed, and that's all I want to say. Uh, William Shatner himself, Captain, happy 90th birthday. And if we're going to talk about Captain Kirk and Star Trek, we have to play this. Face, a final frontier. These are the voyages of the starship Enterprise. Its five-year mission to explore strange new worlds, to seek out new life and new civilizations, to boldly go where no man has gone before. Shatner made that famous. I think, who doesn't know space, the final frontier, really? You know? It's a class. Mm-hmm. And here's, a, and here's and, a pro tip. You know, if you recite that to yourself while you're washing your hands, it's approximately the right amount of time to, uh, to uh, qualify for the CDC guidelines on how long you should be washing your hands these days. So there you go. If you needed some mantra to say, to make sure you're washing your hands long enough. There it is. And, and actually, that was the second week in a row that we played that song because last week we took a moment to remember the woman who actually sings the soprano parts of that particular song. Mm-hmm. That's oh. right. Yeah, and I mean, what a voice. I mean, that is like the most quintessential part of that song. But his voiceover, of course, is really famous. And, you know, I... <laughs> I love, I personally love how they took that old voiceover and then when they went to TNG, they changed it to no one has gone before. They changed it just a little tiny bit. But, uh, you know, 
I think Captain Kirk is always going to be everybody's first, well, maybe not everybody's first captain, maybe everybody of our generation's first captain. <laughs> Certainly the first one who, uh, who let us know what it meant to be uh, in Starfleet. And the first kind of Captain Kirk, uh, I think, memory that I have that sort of clued me in that he was something different was that, that line that he says, um, I think it's in uh, one of those first episodes where he talks to the guy about bigotry not uh, being not having a place on the bridge, and that was like, ooh, ooh, I like that. Balance of cool. Balance Is that Balance of Terror? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yep. yeah. That's a good one. That's a good line. So we have not had a Star Trek series centered on the Enterprise since Enterprise went off the air in 2005. Now we're going to be having Strange New Worlds. Do you think? Anson Mount is going to get to recite space, the final frontier, or do you think they're going to come up with something different? What do you guys think? What would you like to see? Mm-hmm. Me, I would love to see have Anson Mount read that famous uh, introduction um, himself, like like uh, William Shatner did, like Patrick Stewart did. Um, what do you guys think, Charles? I think it'd be cool. I think it would be cool to see him do that famous line. How about yeah, you, I, Eric? I, we didn't really get that famous line on Enterprise. I feel like it would be pretty pretty cool to hear, particularly because he fits right into that genre, but it would also be neat if they kind of like, I don't know if they need to change anything, but it'd be just neat if it was updated somehow just a tiny smidgen. I don't know what that would look like exactly. I haven't put any thought into it, but you know, like what I was talking about, where the, the small change from TOS to TV would be cool if it was like one small change that, I don't know, Star Trekanized it even more. But I would love to hear his voice. I mean, his voice is amazing, right? So he, if he were to read that during the, the opening credits, I think everybody would be very pleased. You guys would hear me squealing like a little schoolgirl yeah. all the way out to Vegas <laughs> and all the way out to Portland. You'd say, oh, yep, that's Jim. He's watching it. It's going to be like the new love theme it. for our show if you if he records I, that. I know it is. I, I would love it. So, yeah, so true. in honor of Shatner's 90th birthday, we have a special. Shatner says, what? What? Show up you guys tonight. And uh, that's because Shatner was all over the news this week, um, just everywhere. So uh, in honor of his birthday, I took a lot of the, of the things we were going to talk about and we were going to mention and bumped them out because we had so much Shatner news. In fact, we have so much Shatner news that some of the Shatner news has been bumped to next week. So we will also have a Shatner says what for next week <laughs> as well because Shatner was a pretty busy guy. Uh, for his 90th birthday. So I'm going to start out with, first of all, all oh. the articles that we're about to read. Yeah. You guys can go to our Facebook uh, page and you can. Well. Get her call the computer first. Computer better let us know we're doing news. Oh, well. We're, uh, we're, oh, wait, oh, yeah, right here. Priority one message from Starfleet coming in on secured channel. Incoming transmission. Enter authorization code. Command codes verified. Define parameters of program. Level 9 authorization required. Specify parameters. Transfer of data is complete. Black alert. Black alert. It is a black alert. All the articles that we're about to talk about, guys, you can go to our Facebook page and you can read the articles in their entirety. 
instead of my chopped up, cut down version. So if you hear anything that you're interested in, please head over to our Facebook page and read the articles in their entirety. They're all there waiting for you to read, anxiously waiting for you to read. So uh, the first article under Shatner says, what? Is uh, William Shatner reveals he still struggles to perform the iconic Vulcan salute. That, that blows my mind. You'd think after 55 years he would have been able to do it. But apparently, having returned from the annual Star Trek Caribbean cruise earlier this month, um, the actor revealed that attendees were advised to employ the Vulcan salute in lieu of shaking hands in a bid to stave off the coronavirus. The actor was seen using his other hand to keep his fingers separate in order to successfully pull off the maneuver. Shatner had been booked for a string of tour dates across the U.K. and Europe this month. The shows have been canceled as the coronavirus pandemic sparks lockdowns in several countries. Uh, taking to Twitter on Tuesday, the fun-loving Star Trekker said, so I'm going to drive you all batshit cray-cray as I'm doing a couple of weeks of self-isolation with my dog's book, TV, a stock pantry, and the Internet. He has spent, spent much of his time on Twitter cracking jokes with fans about their shared experience in self-quarantine as he works to keep them and himself entertained. So that's what's going on with William Shatner right now. Eric, we have some more. Shatner says, what news? And this one I found to be pretty interesting. This one is both interesting, hilarious, and involves numbers. So I am very pleased to read this one. Star Trek and Shirtless Kirk, Trope and Truth. How often did William Shatner really lose his shirt in Star Trek, the original series? Shirtless Kirk is one of those things everybody knows about Star Trek, right? It's even the basis of a joke in the loving Star Trek parody film, Galaxy Quest, which we just watched with my family last weekend, when the late and great Alan Rickman's Dr. Lazarus snaps at Tim Allen's Kirk as Captain Taggart, I see you managed to get your shirt off. Yep, everybody knows Captain Kirk gets his shirt off, just like everybody knows the beam me up Scotty catchphrase. But could the bare-chested Captain James P. Kirk be another piece of Star Trek lore everybody knows and gets wrong? These episodes contain scenes of a shirtless Jim Kirk for one reason or another. Are you ready, folks? Here we go. Where no man has gone before. The Carbonite Maneuver. Charlie X. The Naked Time. What are little girls made of? Miri. Shore leave. A muck time. Mirror, mirror. A private little war. The Gamesters of Triskelon. Patterns of Force. Court Martial. The Enemy Within. The Deadly Years. Journey to Babel, The Paradise Syndrome, The Empath, Plato's Stepchildren, and Turnabout Intruder. So that is in 20 of 79 original Star Trek episodes, 25.3%. Captain Kirk is partially or wholly without a shirt. Saturday morning cartoon censors or Filmation's limited animation style would not have allowed for a shirtless anyone on the Star Trek The Animated Series, which is very interesting. And the TOS-era films, with their recurring focus on aging, didn't really lend themselves well to a bare-chested Kirk. So, just a smidge over 25% of his TOS appearances uh, have him without a shirt. Is that enough to justify claims that Captain Kirk is always losing his shirt? I don't know. But 25% is an I, awful lot. <laughs> I, say, I say absolutely yes. Without I think 25% is an awful lot. <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah, that, that is high. And, and the Galaxy Quest thing proves it. I mean, that is such a when, – when he loses his shirt and says yeah. that, the first thing that pops to your mind is Kirk. And even Lower Decks makes fun of that with Ransom yep. ripping her shirt off to do the two-handed fist uh, Kirk punch. The fist smash. So, That's right. <laughs> I, so funny. I think yes. I'm I'm in the yes court myself. What about you, Charles? Absolutely. You think it's just a, you think it's justified? Yeah, I think definitely. I think I was watching an episode somewhere, and he's got half his shirt shirt torn apart. But yep, that's good. That's good. Well, that is... <laughs> <laughs> uh, All right, Charles. Well, what is our next William Shatner article we get to enjoy this week? Well, somebody didn't quote in, but we continue on with Shatner says, what? Yeah, well, AJ is creating an AI version of himself. That says, William Shatner is creating an artificial intelligence powered version of himself to preserve his memory and legacy for generations to come. The actor will become the first person to have their life story captured by the Los Angeles based story files, conversational, interactive, AI-powered video technology. I have to tell you, said Shatner, said Mr. Shatner, imagine if you could record yourself in a way that future generations, hundreds of years from now, could talk to you, and you could talk back. That's possible. This is for all my children and all my children's children and all my children's loved ones, and all the loved ones of the loved ones. The person recording a story file is filmed answering questions about their life special 3D technology, state-of-the-art sound equipment. Experts then process the footage, tagging clips, and using it to train an artificial intelligence to provide Responses to natural language questions. The finished project is then uploaded to the story file platform where people may then have a real-life conversation with the film of the individual. William Shatner is going where no man has gone before. First of all, that is super cool. I've seen some ideas of this before in sci-fi. Yeah. But it'll be interesting to see how how good of an AI they can create. If, yeah, I mean, if you th- if you think about it, guys, it's actually a holodeck, really. Well, it it is, except yeah. it's more. I think it's more like um, I think about like the uh, the librarian. Uh, what was it called? Like the index or something at the. Picard library that they went to the big data store in the show there um, where there's like pre it's all pre-recorded responses right and it's up to the AI to choose what what the best match is for the person's query so it's not like it's not like you're going to be able to walk up to it and say um, Mr. Shatner how do you like your eggs cooked right because that's probably not a response that he will have um, provided but it'll be smart enough, presumably, to like answer a lot of questions about Star Trek and stuff in his own words, which I think is pretty cool. That is cool. 
I wonder if they're going to put this and, in a uh, museum uh, or what, what did they say? It says Los Angeles based story file. So I wonder if that's yeah, if they sell like this kind of thing to museums or what? It's interesting. Well, I've all, I've seen a local. I think it was a local company that were in town showing off a almost literally a holog a true hologram. What they do hmm. is they film the person in one spot, and the hologram is presented somewhere else. Okay. They literally could have somebody stand at one one place, film, do their live presentation, and then beam the hologram to another place and then make it look like they're actually seeing the person on stage. That's pretty cool. Yeah. Wow, my my cat and dog so are acting up here. my head. The dog's barking out the window. <laughs> my God. <laughs> live Star Trek, people. Live Star Trek. Live so, show. We get to the show. point where we get we get a hologram actors coming on stage doing conventions. Mm-hmm. That would be cool. Yeah, I mean, then the yeah. See, this is the this is that. Uh, have you guys? Well, I don't want to di- uh, digress too much, but this, if you've watched WandaVision, you know about this this paradox that Vision discusses, where he's like, if you take this ancient thing and you start replacing it one piece at a time after you've replaced all the pieces, is it still the same thing? And that would be my question there. You know, if you've, if you've taken, if you've taken away all the actors and you've, you've inserted holograms, A, that's super cool from a technological standpoint, but B, are you actually getting, you know, the same thing? So I don't know that that's interesting, Charles. I hadn't thought about that. Huh? That is, that's a good question. Eric, you got it. You got a good story for us. Oh, man, I got a really good story here. Star Trek, the autobiography of Mr. Spock. Yes! Releasing in September. That's right, people. Star Trek fans can soon experience the history of Spock through his own words. When Titan Books releases the autobiography of Mr. Spock in September. Edited, quote, by Una McCormick, our also uh, our favorite author, editor of the Catherine Janeway autobiography. The book promises to tell the events of Spock's eventful life from his childhood through his adventures in Starfleet, all the way through the Vulcan's own point of view. Told in his own words and telling a story of his life, including his difficult childhood, his adventures on the Enterprise, and his death and resurrection on the Genesis planet. The autobiography of Mr. Spock tells the story of one of Starfleet's finest officers and one of the Federation's most celebrated citizens. Half human and half Vulcan, the book follows his difficult childhood on the planet Vulcan, his his controversial enrollment at Starfleet Academy, his adventures with Captain Kirk and the crew of the Starship Enterprise, his diplomatic triumphs with the Klingons and the Romulans, and his death and amazing resurrection on the Genesis planet. We meet the friends he's made, the women he's loved, the experience uh, and experience the triumphs and tragedies of a life and career that spanned a century. Despite his alien blood, his struggle to find his place in the universe is one we can all relate to. The autobiography of Mr. Spock goes on sale September 7th. Jim, you know, I have one simple question for you about this book. Will Cybok be in it? Cybok has got to be in it. He's got to be, right? I mean, this is the story of his childhood. He's got to be, unless unless the premise, I mean, she's got to deal with it somehow. And this is the one thing that I, I so wanted to 
dive into with we had on the show because you can't of course you can't ask about future projects but uh, I just think this book is going to be so cool she did such a great job with the Janeway book um, and I love right. this this whole concept of of telling the story from the person's own point of view right and she said that she would she's willing to come on the show again and talk with us about well the Janeway book which is now getting old but uh, when all this coronavirus stuff is over so. Maybe by the time we can get around to getting her on, we'll we'll be talking about the Spock book instead of the Janeway book, and we'll have to wait and see. But she's definitely going to come on the show with us again. She said for sure. Wow, she had I'm a good time, and she wants book. to. So, yeah, but, I want to ask but, her about wait. it. It's going to be so cool. Oh, is there more? But wait, there's more. We what? have another great book, Charles. What's the next great book we have to look forward to? Well, not only are we getting an autobiography of Bob, we're also getting a biography of Grudge. Grudge yes. is bad from start to discovery is getting her own book. A book fit for a queen. Even before <laughs> season three began, the people behind Star Trek Discovery started building the buzz around the new character, Grudge. This cat's got so much publicity, including her own dedicated social media account. She might be more than just a cat. Oh, uh, Atlas Brooks, pet feline, who reminds everyone that she is a queen, didn't reveal herself yet to be some kind of new alien. But did she did show up on multiple times throughout season three. And now she is getting her own book. On November 9th, Steel Collector and Penguin Books will be releasing Star Trek Discovery, The Book of Grudge, Books Cat from Star Trek Discovery. The nonfiction book is described as being full of wit and wisdom from Star Trek from a whole new point of view, specifically through the eyes of a cat. Written by Rob Perlman, the book promises to reveal what Grudge the Cat really thinks of the planet, the ship, and all the people she meets in the course of her travels. Grudge is a queen, and she knows it. Everyone, her so-called owner, Cleveland Book Booker, Michael Burnham, Rye, Sahara, and Tilly, bow down to her. Some more willing than others. And nothing to, and nothing not extended periods in space, not stick rattling attacks for her enemies, rattle her. She's whatever. She's a cool kitty with an attitude we call attitude. However, uh, a hardcover book is within the scrapbook style and is packed with off, off the observations throughout and universal facts. Book of Grudge will include a combination of illustrations, photography from Star Trek Discovery Season 3. That sounds fun. That sounds really fun. I mean, like a scrapbook-style book about a cat. I mean, talk about your perfect, uh, you know, back-of-the-toilet book (laughs) to keep around for people to browse through. (laughs) I'm definitely going to – I don't know – I don't know if we can review that book on on uh, Book Nook because it's a scrapbook. How how could we review that book? Yeah, I mean we'd have it's to do a lot of describing. About it. 
Yeah, we could talk about it, but we'll have to kind of describe what we're seeing because I, you know, it won't just be words on a page. There'll be there'll be a lot of pictures and a lot of graphics that kind of really tell the story that the that the book's trying to to tell. I I just think this is so much fun. I'm probably going to get one for my mom. She has no idea what Star Trek is at all, but she loves cats, so she's getting one. (laughs) You guys remember when we uh, when we went to the Discovery premiere when they had the premiere online? And we got all those little things in the mail, which was the little the picture of grudge that you were supposed to hold up for your picture, and we got it too late. Mm-hmm. Yep. So still- they were, they've been hyping grudge for a long time. And I know every time I put grudge up on our Facebook page, grudge gets tons and tons of likes. And uh, a lot of people think that grudge is a Gary 7 ISIS cat, and it actually is a a shapeshifter and isn't really a cat, but uh, like the article says, they haven't alluded to that yet. As 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 of now, Grudge is simply a cat, but that doesn't mean anything. <laughs> they do. I I've seen articles where they say that she has piloted the ship uh, because there's that one scene I forget which episode it's in, but where they cut away to Book's ship and you know Grudge is like sitting right on the console there, and it's the first thing that everybody sees. <laughs> yeah, there, so, there was the one episode where um, where uh, the, the ship gets uh, put on autopilot and sent back right. to the Discovery, and when, when Tilly puts it up on the screen, Grudge is sitting there, and the ship is landing in the landing bay, and it's <laughs> as if Grudge is flying it, which she really so wasn't, funny. but it, it appeared no. that way. Yeah, yeah, it was pretty funny. <laughs> The queen I, I can't wait to read that book. It's going to be great. So anyways, guys, we have to take another commercial break. Uh, we're going to hear on this break, we're going to hear about Star Trek Discovery Season 2 available on Blu-ray. If you'd like to have your commercial on this show, uh, please just give us a, a shout-out on our Facebook page, a Trek Talking and Beyond, and uh, we'll let you know how to make that happen. Um, any commercials for conventions or events or local businesses that are on the show obviously will be immortalized for all of eternity because not only do they go out live right now, but every single person that listens to this podcast at any later date will get to hear your commercial forever. So uh, give it a, give it a thought and see if it's something you might be interested in. So right now we're going to hear about Star Trek Discovery Season 2 coming to Blu-ray. I have seen a possible future, one that could be determined by our actions, yours and mine. Show me my brother's mind. Discover the Blu-ray and DVD experience of Star Trek Discovery Season 2. All 14 episodes with brilliant picture and sound. Plus two short tracks that relate to episodes from this second season. What is out there beyond the skies? This extraordinary four-disc set contains over two hours of exclusive special features. Captain on the bridge. Including nine featurettes. I can't believe how many resources they poured into building the Enterprise bridge. Here we are at the Enterprise. Um, We're in the process of building it. It's styled after the original series. And the classic orange railings are yet to come, so there'll be four of them coming here. Orange? Really? 
Also, audio commentaries on four episodes, deleted scenes. No offense, but we're trying to solve time travel. And a gag reel. Lieutenant Spock, this is Captain Spike. <laughs> is that a smile I see on your face? Yes. I loved the journey of the Red Angel suit. It was an example of art being made. I just kept screaming, this is Star Trek! <laughs> as long as Discovery exists here and now, this will never be over. Discovery has to go to the future. I need you to hold her together. It's coming! Star Trek Discovery Season 2 on Blu-ray and DVD. Coming to your collection November 12th. I can take Discovery to the future, but I won't be able to come back. It's time. And we're back, guys. We have one more story to talk about here, and then we're going to dive into Star Trek Voyager 7's Reckoning. How does that sound, guys? What You got time for one more story? I got time. I think we do. This is, this, is a, this is a good one. I was thinking about bumping this one the next week, but I decided we got time. We're going to fit it in because I think this is an important one. So the city of Boston honors a Star Trek legend by declaring March 26th, Leonard Nimoy Day. Awesome. Uh, before coming to fame in Hollywood and on Star Trek, Leonard Nimoy's roots were in Boston, where he grew up and went to college. Even after making California his home, Nimoy returned to Boston often and supported the local community. Nimoy was born on March 26, 1931, and this year would have been his 90th birthday. To honor that day, the city of Boston has declared March 26, 2021 as Leonard Nimoy Day. It also notes how Leonard Nimoy's role at Spock gave the immigrant and refugee and oppressed a hero for the outsider. It also notes that even though he has passed away, Nimoy will always be remembered as a valued a constituent dedicated to both the arts and his community. An effort is currently underway to build a Leonard Nimoy Memorial in Boston. The latest plans call for a bronze lattice statue in the shape of Leonard Nimoy's famous Vulcan salute. At last report, the project was still working out details on finding a location and funding, but it had the support of the Nimoy family along with others in the community. That is awesome. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's really cool. That is just awesome. It, may, it definitely makes me think of the Janeway statue in Bloomington that was just unveiled this past year. Um, but it's isn't it fun that, um, you know, somebody like the mayor of Boston would actually not necessarily recognize the person for the fact that they were on Star Trek, but for the fact that their character was was so influential and actually as they – as they say here, you know, providing an example for others. So, you know, I just think that's really cool. And plus him being a local, you know, is of course why they're doing it. But I think it'd be really and, and cool to go back to Boston and see that, that statue. I've got some great news for you guys, because if they do that, I think trick talking can actually go and do some live coverage of the event and uh, some pictures and whatnot, because it's just a few short hours from where I'm sitting right now. I could be in Boston That'd be awesome. and just under four just under four hours I can be there. And my brother lives in Boston, so I can 
I can visit the family while I'm there and report to you guys live on what's going on and get some pictures on our Facebook page from the event. So we'll have to wait and see when that happens. So welcome to Comic Corner, the extra extended edition. And uh, so uh, what we've done is we've taken Comic Corner and added it into Trek Talking until Star Trek comes back on the air. So this is Comic Corner, guys. Our phone number here is 646-668-2433. We're talking about Star Trek Voyager, Seven's Reckoning, Part 3 of 4, Sympathy for the Damned, illustrated by the awesome Angel Hernandez, colored by Rhonda Patterson, and written by David Baker. So, um, Eric, you want to start us out with uh, with this issue? And Charles sure. Charles can do uh... the finale? That sounds great. Uh, yeah, so this issue, uh, issue number three, uh, first of all, very consistent with the previous issues that we've gotten to. Same artist, same writer, uh, same letterer, all that sort of stuff. So this one has a very consistent feel with what we've seen in the past. And it actually starts in exactly the same way. You kind of get um, two splash pages. The opening page that's just opposite of the opening credits and everything is a is a scene uh, – kind of a almost fanciful scene, but that is very familiar of the scene back in Star Trek Voyager when Seven first came uh, on the ship. Um, but it's all mixed up in kind of a dreamy way now, and there's this this big black raven uh, that has been starting to appear and then starts to appear even more. And then uh, you turn the page and you get the big two-page splash page of Voyager that we've gotten in all the previous issues each one has changed, and this Voyager in particular is surrounded by uh, by a bunch of ravens uh, or perhaps crows. And I'm very interested to talk about that with you guys and see if we can talk about that symbolism a little bit and, and maybe sleuth out why they decided to put that at the beginning of the book. But as we head into the book, you'll remember that this book or this whole series effectively is a, is a story of the Vesh and the Khazar, the Khazar being this kind of race of aliens who have uh, dominion over the Vesh, and the Vesh being these four-armed kind of worker uh, aliens who we just found out in the last issue is actually kind of a surreptitious relationship between the two because the Khazar actually gain longevity in their lifespan by spending time around the Vesh who secrete this um, this uh, pheromone out into the world. So so there's some tension here because you have two different groups of people, this essentially the elites and the, and the, uh, you know, the pro- proletariat, I guess, <laughs> down below them, uh, and the latter wanting revolution and feeling like they are the ones who uh, are ready to stand up against their oppressors. So we start right in the heat of things. There's a battle. Um, the Vesh uh, soldiers are kind of, uh, or excuse me, the Khazar soldiers are kind of coming after the Vesh who are trying to revolt. And of course, in the midst of the group of revolutionaries is Seven herself. Um, she manages to get knocked down, uh, fights her way back out of it, blows up some people with some electricity from her fingers. Uh, and then there's kind of a the story that gets told, and you remember that there's been a focus on this culture kind of seeing their lives as a story that has natural protagonists, natural villains, a natural ending that is almost inevitable and can't be changed. And so uh, you kind of get this soliloquy by uh, one of the Khazar who's in charge here about 
why the Khazar need to be in charge and about why the Besh need to be subservient to them. And eventually you actually see the collapse and the surrender of this Vesh greed who has been leading the revolution up to this point because he, he kind of feels like he's lost hope. Um, you know, he, he, he feels like there's no way, there's no way somebody lowly like me can lead a revolution against uh, people who are oppressing my people. Um, so I think that's kind of an interesting moment. Um, you know, eventually they kind of retreat and him and Seven regroup. They, they find this secret area that's underneath uh, everything else, and they, they find out that the story that's been woven uh, by the Khazar about them being in charge, about them having historical uh, connections to this character called the Dawnbringer that we've talked about in the past, we actually find out it's all a lie. And in fact, uh, it's actually the Vesh, uh, the, the race of the Vesh was uh, from whom the Dawnbringer came. And they find this, this statue that kind of proves it, and they know for sure. Uh, so, you know, we get to the end of this, and, and there's kind of a great moment that leads right into book number four, which, which Charles will brief us on. But I will say that um, I think this story in general is interesting it definitely, you have to be interested in this kind of concept of uh, people fighting against their oppressors, which of course is a reoccurring theme in, in many science fiction, especially Star Trek. Um, but I do like it in that it kind of shows this group of people who grow up in a culture of inevitability, where, where they know from the moment that they're born the Vesh know that they are going to be subservient to this other group uh, in their society. And they grow up with that pressure on them their entire lives. Um, and when they come to find out in this story that it's all a lie, that really, in fact, they were the ones who were the protagonists, the heroes in the back, right? Even the, even the leader of the Khazar calls themselves protagonist. That's, it's not like minister or president or whatever. It's, it's protagonist. So I really still love this concept of both of these races being very focused on wanting to be the hero of the story that's being woven about their culture. And I love the fact that like some secret stuff is sort of uncovered and whatnot. Um, I'll be interested to hear your guys' thoughts on the book. I wouldn't say it's like overly compelling. Like it's not one of the stories that really comes to mind when I say the best Star Trek books we've read in the last five years but it is an interesting story, and, it, and it's a different story that I don't think we have read in the last five years or so. I don't know. What do you guys think? Well, um, first of all, I think the artwork is spectacular, I think. Yeah, Angel um, Hernandez is awesome. I really like the artwork. I really like the colors. Um, the oranges, the browns, they jump right off the page at you. Very very colorful. I, I like that the ships are, are dark earth tones. Everything is, is dark earthy tones, uh, shadowy, yet the, the characters are orange and um, they, they kind of leap off the page. I really like that. I also like the way it's laid out. I like the panels. They're very easy to read. They, it flows very nicely and the um, dialogue boxes are, are easy to read. Um, they're not crammed full of you know, dialogue where you can't really read it. Um, so I really like the layout, and I really like the story. I like the way it flows. So there's that. Um, I also like the the way they, they 
you can definitely see why seven would pick them to identify with being a Borg drone uh, XB herself. Uh, you can clearly see yeah. why she would side with them. Well, I think that's sure. true, Jim, and that's a good point. And I also think that you see why she would side with them in terms of her like journey to become more human at this point, because one of the very first things that Janeway kind of teaches her as she comes on the ship is the fact that other creatures deserve compassion and that they're not just machines to be ordered around to do things. You know, Seven has to learn how to build relationships with people. And I think that this story is being presented as one of the first times that she actually, her passion, right? Which you don't think of with Seven. You don't like, you don't think Seven, oh, passion. I mean, once you get to Picard, it's a little bit of a different Seven. But Voyager's Seven, you don't think passion right off the bat. And yet it takes a lot of passion to be involved in this big story she's involved in that involves a lot of politics and and an injustice for people, right? That's what she's pissed off about. She's pissed off at the injustice that these people are suffering. Yeah, absolutely. What do you think, Charles? Definitely I agree with your setup. <coughs> the beginning of the, the this story kind of confused me of how, what direction they were going in. You'll hear me talk about. I think they finally got the story tied up in the fourth book, and definitely I like the direction they took it, especially in the fourth book. Still had me kind of curious what was going on. Then we get a little cliffhanger at the end of this of this book, and definitely I think Major like, okay, I'm still. I'm still there. I'm still going to be wondering what's happening next. And definitely took me to the point like, okay, I'm ready to see what, what, how we're going to finalize this one. But they did still overall did a good job with this one. Yeah, I did have a when the when the book first starts out, the very first page of the book. Um, is what when they first find seven on the board cube, right? Yeah. I, well, I think, I think that it is taken from that, but like I was saying at the beginning, I, you know, in this book in particular, but it actually started in book two, that kind of memory, I think is distorted. And here we get the addition of this big black bird, you know? And so I was interested in what you guys thought about, I mean, we don't often get into like, philosophy and that sort of thing when it when it comes to the books that we review here but what do you think this big raven or crow or whatever it is is about in this story and why are they using it as such a you know such a strong statement right at the beginning of the book here I don't know any thoughts on that well I you know I, I if I remember correctly the name of the ship that she was on was the raven right that her parents yeah, the were USS on. Raven. Yeah. USS Raven was the name of the ship that she was assimilated from when she was eight, oh, when she was little. That's right. Mm-hmm. And um, the way we see the ship, the way we see the Ravens, if we look at all the pictures, is, you know, first we see the Voyager, and then we see some Ravens around the Voyager. Then we see a lot of Ravens around the Voyager. Then we see Voyager turn into a Raven and completely 
go away and become a raven. And I, I think that that's the transformation of of Annika into seven or Annika into uh, adjunct uh, uh, adjunctary drone seven <laughs> of Unimatrix zero into seven. I think I butchered that, but I think that that symbolizes the transformation of her from a human to a Borg and then back to an XB is the way mm-hmm. I'm taking that. Mm-hmm. You know, she started off as a human. She became a Borg for the majority of her life. And then she was turned back into a human, but never really, as she says to Picard, uh, she's never really feels fully human because she's always feels like she's part Borg. So I, I think the Raven symbolizes that change in her from human to Borg to something else, mm-hmm. whatever you, you want to call that. What do, what do you think, Charles? I think that is an idea. I think it is a representation of the changes she's going through. We definitely get an interesting representation of this one when we get into the fourth book. But definitely, yeah. I think I agree with you. I think it is tied into her the changes she has to go through. I, you know, the one question. Um, yeah, I, I, well, I was just going to say that you know that the comment that I made about this being such a a passionate seven in this one, you know, it does make me think about the seven that we get uh, in Picard, who of course is with the Ferris Rangers and is always fighting for the little guy, right? She's doing all the things that uh, the Federation's not doing anymore out there uh, in the outer rim. I don't know what they call it in Star Trek, but you know what I'm saying? Like the outer reaches of the galaxy. Yeah. Um, if and you so see the Millennium Falcon fly by, we're, we're in trouble. <laughs> but, I think, but I think that this story kind of ties into what her Picard character will become a little bit too, right? Because she doesn't, she really has no reason, I think, to really care about these people other than the fact that something is resonating with her about their plight, right? She, she sees, like, people who are being oppressed by another group of people, and there's something about that that resonates with her, and she feels like she needs to fight for it. And it's that kind of deep passion that Seven has that we see, you know, goes fast forward 30 years and here she is in Picard still doing the same thing, still fighting for the little guy out there. I just love that. That's something that she learns from, from Janeway and Chakotay and the doctor and the rest of the crew, which is hilarious that a holographic doctor can have such an influence on a on ex-Borg. I, I love that whole dynamic. But yeah, it's interesting because that, Janeway, you would think that the, the, the hologram would be the logical one, right? But the, the hologram is the one who teaches her how to be human, and Janeway is the one who actually ultimately teaches her that rules and Starfleet protocols and things like that have value even when you're a million miles from all that. Yeah, I think that all the lessons that she learns, from just, even from uh, Naomi Wildman, and from the Borg children that come aboard the ship and all the things that she goes through in her journey on Voyager as a member of the crew, this is something that Seven of Nine has never really been exposed to, being part of a collective. And, you know, here we have Captain Janeway saying to her, you know, we want you to be part of our collective, but our collective is a family. 
and, you know, you can eat what you want, you can do what you want, you can be who you want, and still be part of our collective, where individuality is important and celebrated. And I think that's, that's something that Seven of Nine learns from being on the Voyager, and I think that's something that Seven of Nine wants these people to learn as well. Mm-hmm. And I think it's even more in the next in the next issue here. So yeah, Charles should probably lead us right in because I think exactly what you're talking about, Jim, leads right into the one of the main themes in book four here. Yeah, I think that I think that she's definitely um, she's definitely feeling that, and I, I and I really think she learned. If you look at the way she is in Picard, I think that she's really she learned a lot from Captain Janeway. I think and. I would be interested in seeing Janeway, Admiral Janeway on Picard, meet Seven. I would love to see how that would happen, how that would play out. That would be incredible. I I don't think, you know, I don't think we will, but I'd love to see that. I mean, I think people would love to see an Admiral Janeway, and first and foremost, just to see how different she is from the Admiral Janeway that we did get to see uh, in Endgame, you know, who who took another 23 years to get back to the Alpha Quadrant. Um, maybe the Admiral Janeway that we get as a result of their earlier return to the Alpha Quadrant wouldn't be quite so dark, quite so salty, you know. Maybe she would uh, want to reach out to Seven and kind of, you know, check back in with her and kind of have that, have that friendly disposition. I feel like the Voyager uh, Endgame Admiral that we get is so bent on trying to get Voyager back earlier that it's not a true testament to what an Admiral Janeway would be like. Well, she did she did rewrite history just to save Seven. So she's got some pretty deep feelings for Seven all along. So it, it would be interesting. And we know that Janeway's alive during Picard because we see her in first contact sending Picard on, on a uh, nemesis sending Picard to the Romulan homeworld. So she's, she's there. She's around. Yeah, and I think we all also experienced some really interesting insights from Janeway's point of view on Seven of Nye in Una McCormick's book, um, the Catherine Janeway autobiography, because she does talk about Seven a little bit and how, um, you know, the fact that, that, not to talk about the book too much, but the fact that Janeway w- had to, basically was forced to leave her partner unexpectedly she was therefore kind of forced into this role of being a captain destined to never really have kids or have her own family um, destined for the ship to be her family and therefore kind of taking seven under her wing um, and, and relating very strongly to her and the kind of similarities that seven had uh, as Janeway when Janeway was a kid. So yeah, they obviously have a very strong relationship and you know, it, that's what's interesting about reading this book, I think, is that you kind of have to remember that we're reading a Seven who hasn't been on the Voyager for very long here yet. We're not reading yeah. a Seven who's been around Janeway for six or seven seasons, or excuse me, three or four seasons already. So, so yeah, it, I think it helps to kind of see her as in her, in her developmental phase here. And, and Charles, in book four, you'll, you'll talk about that a little bit too um, with the scenes with her and Janeway. Yeah, this is this is a if I remember correctly, this is not this is not long after they bring her aboard. 
I don't remember the exact time frame, right. but it's it's pretty early. She hasn't been there for very, very long at this point in this book, no. anyways. She's relatively no, new to I the think, crew. I think this yeah. was her so, first away mission. Yeah. Yeah, this is early, early, early in Seven's development with the crew. So that that changes the way you look at the character just a little bit because a lot of the things that we know about her haven't happened yet. And so I think that's that's really a great place to start with this character. So listen, guys, uh, we have to take our final commercial break of the night for our listeners over there at Odyssey Radio. Uh, but don't worry, because we're going to be right back. And uh, we still have a lot to talk about. We still have book four of Seven's Reckoning to cover, which we're about to talk about. If you'd like to give us a call and be part of the show, please do. 646-668-2433 is a number. We'll be with you guys for, oh, about another 28 minutes and 50 seconds. Uh, so if you want to give us a call, please do, and we'll get you on the air. If you want to talk about Seven of Nine or Shatner Says What or any of the issues that we've mentioned on tonight's show, please give us a call, and we'll get you on the air. But first, I have to play this very important message from my friend TJ over at Freakopolis Geekery in Whitehall, New York. If you'd like to have your business convention or event on this show, please give us a call, or not give us a call, but message us on our Facebook page, and we'll tell you how to make that happen. We'll be right back after this very quick yet very important message. Don't touch that dial. This podcast is brought to you in part by the Freakopolis Geekery, the premier upstate New York comics and game shop. Centrally located between Saratoga Glens Falls, Ticonderoga, and Rutland, Vermont, The Geekery is a haven for pop culture and science fiction fans. For Star Trek fans, The Geekery features board games like Ascendancy, as well as awesome gaming titles like Star Trek Adventures RPG from Modiphius, Star Trek Away Team Zero Clicks, and of course, Star Trek Attack Wing Ship-to-Ship Tactical Combat for the Tabletop. The Geekery hosts casual play sessions, learn-to-play sessions, and sanctioned organized play tournaments with limited edition prize support. You'll also find comics and trade paperbacks at Freakopolis, including Star Trek titles from IDW. Lots of issues are in stock, and special orders are no problem. Whether you visit in person by shuttlecraft or beam in online to Freakopolis.com, you'll find yourself right at home at the Freakopolis Geekery. And welcome back, everyone. Uh, Speaking of Freakopolis Geekery, I do have some good news for you guys. Uh, State of New York, we're going to be allowed to play live in-person games again starting next month at Freakopolis Geekery. All you have to do is have proof of vaccination, which I'll have, and uh, we will be able to play Star Trek Attack Wing and get together in person and start playing some games again. So if you have your vaccination, if you have your vaccination card to prove you've been vaccinated, um, you can head over to Freakopolis Geekery and play some games on the table. And I am so psyched about that because it's been over a year. And I just so much miss the interaction with, with people. So I'm really, really psyched about that. So without further ado, we're going to talk about Star Trek Voyager 7's Reckoning, Part 4 of 4, The Endless Echo of Hate. Interesting title. Again, illustrated by Angel Hernandez, colored by Ronald Patterson, and written by Dave Baker. And for this one, we're going to turn to our very own 
Charles to give us a rundown and synopsis. Take it away, Charles. All right. Well, you get an interesting look at this one just by the cover, cover A. We see Janeway trying to hold back seven. And we've got a sentence being held down for one of our aliens. So we open the book and we go right back in to the Raven image. Except that you see Seven and a very large raven behind her. I think tying her to the raven and her path. And then this time when we go to the next page, unlike seeing the Voyager and the fleet of ravens, you just see one big raven and kind of shattering into smaller ravens. But as we jump into the scene, we realize that the cutscene that Eric didn't mention was an explosion. There was an explosion on board the ship, and Seven had been somewhat uh, partially damaged, partially injured to it. The doctor's done well trying to get to her put to healing her wounds, problems with healing. You can heal the physical wounds. You can't heal the internal wounds, the nightmare of what's going on. And then Janeway's like, okay, will she, will she recover? And the doctor's like, she'll, follow, she'll return to within normal operating parameters. And the doctor decides, like, oh, okay. Uh, Janeway's like, I want to talk to Seven. And the doctor's like, well, go right ahead. And it's like, oh. And he's like, deactivating emergency medical hologram. Like, oh, poor doctor's like, okay, you want to be alone. <clears throat> but she, does, she goes into an interesting conversation and start to deal with, I think, the overall topic of this book, which I think is a very, very good, important topic. So important that even Uncle Jim recently talked with our Leslie Hoffman about. And that's the prime directive. And what it requires of dealing with the prime directive. But they've been allowed to make one more trip to finish working on the warp drive. So Janeway's warning her to be careful of what she's doing. And it's an interesting conversation about what what's happening. Well, she returns back to the ship, and you end up seeing some of the injured from the explosion. And that she's welcome back, and still having the conversation between the two realms of the aliens. But he finally, it's like, okay, well, you need to get that warp engine fixed. So he's slowly working on getting it back online. <clears throat> and you see the fact that Promise, Greb made a deal, and that everyone would be protected. 
and yet you see them renege and saying, okay, everybody gets to be somewhat protected. We're a little bit back to the old old system, except for him. They're going to sit there, and they want to put a death sentence on him to the two groups and what's going on. And one of the lines I do love in this book is when Seven of Nine makes a comment, liberation is paramount. And you realize in one part, before he feels like he's going to be sent to gain his death sentence, he realizes that liberation is paramount. But that they're finally kind of realizing that, yes, there is a fight in here, but they, the fight's not over. But they still want to realize the fact that they are the Dawnbringers. But that we kind of get an end to that story, where we don't really know what happened aboard the ship. But I'll put a personal opinion. I think there is going to be a civil war on that ship. And I think there is going to be a conflict on both sides. But we return back with Janeway in her quarter, in, in her office. And seven of nine standing next to her. And then having a very deep discussion about the Prime Directive and kind of what acquired the Prime Directive. And seven of nine kind of feeling like he sees the blame of some of the things that have happened. But I think we realize in the end of the story that. The prime, direct, prime directive is not black and white. Sometimes there are shades of gray in there, and how do you deal with those shades of gray? We sit there and interfere with politics or what's going on between two in the Federation or the Delta Quadrant, and how do we deal with that issue? I think it does come down to the fact that there is that still that big question on how do we deal with that issue? And where is that fine line? But definitely I like how they took it to that point. It's like, okay, yeah, it's, there's a fine line, and it's hard to sit there and balance between both sides. And Janeway really is one to sit there and say we've got to sit there and keep that balance. But Seven hasn't reckoned in understanding that balance yet. Go yeah, ahead, well, it, well, I was going to say, Charles, one of the things that you mentioned was that line she says um, about liberation being paramount. And, you know, I almost wonder if – so she says it earlier, and then, you know, obviously Greed or one of his homies there says it later. And so it almost seems like that saying came from – Seven. And so the first question I asked myself was, 
whose liberation is she talking about? Is she is like is what's really going on here that Seven is working to free these people because she's doing the thing that she wasn't able to do for herself, right? She wasn't able to save herself from the Borg. Her parents were not able to save her from the Borg. And in fact, she's, she was pretty upset with her parents for, you know, getting her assimilated, which I, yeah. I can definitely see as a, as a very valid argument. So is she trying to work out some of her own kind of uh, baggage here in this story by liberating this group of people? Because, I mean, is liberation paramount? Well, that depends on how you look at it, right? Because there's a pretty clear prime directive, like, violation going going on here, not unlike some of the ones that we see in TOS where, you know, one little thing goes wrong and they come back a hundred years later and an entire culture is built on a book or, or, you know, something that happened back in the past. Seven clearly had an influence. Go ahead. We've also got the conflict that we're following the prime directive, but the prime directive is based made majorly on the alpha quadrant. But what about the delta quadrant? Yeah, and, and it's interesting because Janeway constantly finds herself in this spot throughout the series, and I think this comic book does a good um, job of kind of capturing the essence of it, even though this comic's really about Seven and not about Janeway, in that she's, she's constantly asking herself, do I, do I hardline the Prime Directive right now? Do I, you know, apply some of my own morals? I mean, she gives, in this particular book, she gives Seven a little sermon about why uh, the prime directive is so important and, and, you know, why she really shouldn't be getting involved with these, with these people. And yet it's almost like seven then turns right around and almost schools Janeway on it. Right? She's like, no, actually you're the one who's being silly because clearly there's some oppression going on here and it doesn't matter what culture you're part of. Like when one group is being kept down simply for the benefit of another group, there could be some, you know, maybe there's some, uh, maybe there's some moral questions in there about that that are more universal yeah. uh, and not just uh, dependent on individual culture. So I, I don't know. The book does a really good job, I think, of of it doesn't sew anything up at the end, right? It's almost like a Shakespearean tragedy at the end. I mean, your your main your main good guy, alien dude, probably dies. There's probably a big revolution, like you're saying, Charles. We don't get to see any of that. We just sort of, it's almost like Seven goes in, stirs the pot, some stuff happens, and then they bug out. And we have no idea what happens at the end of it. So it's also kind of like some of those old 90s Star Trek episodes that we've talked about in the past where there are no consequences. <laughs> we don't know what the consequences of this, of this story yeah. actually are, right? So. Well, if you look, we, we're talking about the Raven, and we're talking about... Um, uh, seven. Uh, if you look at the very first page after the explosion, we see a whole bunch of ravens coming together to form seven, which you know symbolizes all the all the many voices of the Borg that are are being turned into one. And now, now she's an individual with only one raven instead of many ravens. So, yeah, I think it is paramount to her. I think that's exactly what 
what she's saying. Right? Yeah. I mean, yeah, I mean, for her, that, that's an important know. part of the story. She becomes, I mean, this is probably where she cuts her teeth a little bit on being a revolutionary. Because there's not a lot of times throughout Voyager's seven seasons where um, where they go to overthrow something else or I mean I guess there are times when they when they help out under privileged groups of people for sure that's definitely a, a Janeway theme but um, but this is probably where Seven cuts her teeth on that kind of a, of a concept so it's almost like um, an origin story you know we get a little bit of Seven tossed in here that uh, deepens her character that we see right after she comes on the show so I think that's pretty cool you know, this story could fit right into canon, right? It could fit right in and be in an episode or a, a two-episode arc or something like that. Uh, I, think it, I think it fits right in with the series. Well, I would, yeah, and this could, it, it this has, could easily, mm-hmm. I mean, this could easily fit into the arc of saying, well, what's the origin of the uh, her rebel group in Picard? Mm-hmm. And they could easily tie it that far back that this was the beginning of why she created this group to help protect others. Yeah. Because she right. tried to protect this group and didn't succeed. Yeah, it just gives another dimension to the seven. Because on the show, we get so much of her individual development and kind of her um, growth as a human with other humans, her relationships that she forms and that kind of stuff. We don't get a lot of stories about the, I mean, aside from that first season, a lot of stories about kind of what it, what does she want, you know, what drives her? And it seems like um, helping others and, and, and helping the underdog is really something that pretty deeply drives Seven, um, and it's particularly the Seven that we see in Picard, I think. Yeah. I wanted to add that, um, again, I think the colors, I think that this, this book is, is the same quality as the last one. Um, the colors are, 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 are vibrant and well done, and the panels are very clear and easy to follow and consistent and laid out very well. So I really appreciate that. Uh, it's hard to read a book sometimes when it's jumping around and it's, you don't know where to go next and your eye is moving all around the page. But, you know, this one was very easy to follow and it flowed very nicely. So I really appreciated that. Um, but there was one thing that I, I don't know, negative I want to say is that um, this reminded me of your typical Star Trek episode and the fact that it didn't end. And, you know, that's one of the things that a lot of Star Trek episodes do. You know, a society picks up a book, they become gangsters. Kirk and Spock solve the day, they fly away in their ship, and we never know what happens to that particular culture ever again. And that was a reoccurring theme on a lot of TOS and a lot of TNG where the the crew would, would solve that particular part of the mission and just leave. And as viewers, we're left, well, what happened to those people? What happened to that culture? What happened to that planet? And we never find out. And this was well, this is a perfect example where you know seven beings back to the Voyager. Uh, did they ever get back to their planet? Was their planet even still there? We, we, we don't know um, anything about them. Like you said, I think they did have a revolution, 
I, I feel that they would have. Um, but we don't know. Um, we're just left wondering what happened. Um, it's left up to us to decide. And, um, you know, that can be good, that can be bad. It depends on your point of view, I suppose. Um, so, yeah, I would have liked to see a little bit more of an ending myself. Yeah, I mean, I think, I think in some ways it's, I, you know, I was mentioning that earlier too, Jim, and I think in some ways you're right. But the other thing that I will say about that is that remember that this story is about a cultural revolution, and that is not something that can be packaged up nicely in four issues, right? So at some point we kind of had to get the what I'll call, call the Picard moment, because I think he was the one who was probably the most famous for it, although it started even back in TOS with Kirk, where you go through the whole episode, and then at the end, there's the, there's the moral lesson, right? There's the speech that, <laughs> that like, explains yeah. what you're supposed to learn from that episode, and, and we get it from Janeway in this one, right? It's like the story ends, the revolution is happening, but now we're back on the Voyager, and, you know, Janeway's talking to Seven, and she's like, listen, you can't impose your moral hierarchy on these people. You can't lead um, things. And Seven's like, yeah, but actually your decision not to intervene is the amoral decision. So that's where it, it I think, even though it does end abruptly, it's very Star Trek-y. Because the story is not actually about the people, right? The It's not, like, in the end we sort of care about what actually happens to these aliens, but the story is not about the aliens. The story is about the question of whether or not it's moral for seven to be exerting influence on a culture like that. It's, it's kind of a classic Star Trek question. So um, I didn't mind, even though I totally agree with you, it ends abruptly. It's like chop done, no consequences. Like we never go back. Yes. And that's how so many episodes of Star Trek end. <laughs> uh, not Discovery, not Picard, different types of shows, right? But that's how 60s yeah, and 90s it's... Trek ends. Yeah. And I, I, I think it, you know, it leaves it up to the reader to determine, you know, right. who won the revolution, who was right, who was wrong. Um, and that's great. That's, that's totally, totally Trek. Before we run out of time, though, I wanted, what, what, do you, what would you guys give a score um, let, let's do the whole series instead of the individual books. Uh, would you would you recommend this four issue series, Seven's Reckoning, to our listeners? And what would you score it on a scale of one to ten? What, what would you what would you do? What would you give it, um, Charles? Uh, okay. If you're the somewhat average fan of just overall series. This might not quite be the book for you. But if you're definitely a Seven of Nine fan, a Voyager fan, and kind of like an episodic type series, I definitely think this probably is the book for you. Overall, I'll go with an eight. I did enjoy the book. I did enjoy the direction they took it. And I think this definitely puts an interesting interesting little cap and a little discussion about the Prime Directive. Definitely not a black and white topic. An eight. That's cool. 
That's cool. How about you, Eric? Uh, yeah, I mean, I'm a I'm a big Voyager fan. Um, uh, I will say, I think Year Five is still the best Star Trek book coming out these days. Uh, so, in terms of comparing this to other books that we've been getting recently, I'd I'd have to put this in more of like a I think a seven to seven and a half kind of range. Um, definitely a good book. You definitely should read it. As Charles said, if you're interested in Seven, if you like Voyager, that kind of stuff. But it's not one that's going to really, really grab you by the lapels and, and you know, make you want to read it over and over again, I don't think. Yeah, and you know what? I'm right there with you guys. I was thinking I was thinking 7.5, 7.8, you know, upper 7, I was thinking. Um, so we're, we're all right in the same area. I, like I said, I think the story was, was compelling. You know, it was a good story. It made you think. Um, the artwork was was very well well done. I like the colors. I like the flow. It was easy to read. And uh, Seven's a very intricate character. And with a lot with her being on Starship Picard, you know, this just gives you a little more background into the character. So I think we're all in agreement on that. And uh, before we have to go, I want to let you guys know that, as Charles said, Leslie and I will be talking about the Prime Directive on Stunt Treks on Sunday night from seven to 8 p.m. Eastern Daylight Savings Time. And uh, we talked a little bit about TOS last week. We're going to move on to TNG and beyond this week and uh, share our thoughts about the Prime Directive. So if you're interested in that, you want to tune in. And, of course, the number for Stunt Trek, coincidentally, <laughs> happens to be the same number as it is for this show, 646-668-2433. So if you want to talk about the Prime Directive, you can give us a call on Sunday night and chime in. We would love to have you. Also, our next um, episode of Trek Talking, we're going to be talking about Star Trek Enterprise. We're going to be talking in particular about the pilot episode, uh, Broken Bow, and the finale, These Are the Voyages. And we're going to find out what the fans on our Facebook page thought about both of those episodes. You can head over there to Trek Talking and Beyond at Facebook and find the post, and you can tell us what you thought about the pilot and the finale. And I'm, without having to spoil anything for you guys, I think you kind of already know what the fans thought about some of that already, and we'll, we'll dive into <laughs> that in greater, greater detail on uh, next week's show. We also have more of Shatner says, what? because there was a lot of things in the news with Shatner we couldn't fit into this week's show. So some of that stuff is going to carry over next week for Star Trek news. So you want to definitely check that out. And uh, put over to the Leslie Hoffman Appreciation Organization Facebook page and just say hello to Leslie. She loves to hear from you guys, and she'll answer you back personally. So please do that. If you have an idea for a show, you can also make that suggestion over there at the Leslie Hoffman Appreciation Organization Facebook page, and uh, we'll take it under advisement. We we haven't talked about Planet of the Apes all that much lately, so who knows? Maybe Leslie and I will meander into Planet of the Apes. So that pretty much wraps up another show, guys. Ever you are, we really appreciate your support. It means so much to us that people in um, Trinidad are listening to us, and um, Yugoslavia as well. That's incredible. That's awesome. And um, I couldn't do the show without my 
Trexperts, and we'll start off with uh, Eric. Thank you very much for hanging out with us tonight and talking about uh, Star Trek and uh, Voyager 7's Reckoning, Issue 3 and 4 with us tonight. Eric, we couldn't do the show without you. Thank you very much for hanging out with us. Uh, you bet, guys. You're, uh, you're my favorite thing to do on Thursday nights. That's for sure. And And... The cool thing is Thursday night is Trek night because when all of our Star Trek shows come back on, they're on Thursday night on uh, Paramount Plus, which is pretty cool because we share Star Trek Day, which is awesome. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so we'll always we'll always be a week behind each week, um, but that's cool because while we're talking about an episode, a brand new one is on, so that's awesome. And, of course, we couldn't do the show without our very own Charles, who's hanging out in Las Vegas. So thank you very much, Charles, for hanging out and talking Voyager and Trek talking with us as well. We really appreciate it. I always look for Thursdays. Sometimes I call small Fridays. But always look forward. Like, oh, yeah. see, I get to the show, and we got Fridays. <laughs> always looking forward to Thursdays. Yeah, Thursdays, Thursdays are they're my favorite day of the week is Thursday. And, of course, I'm your most excellent host, Uncle Jim, saying thank you so, so much to each and every single one of you guys. We would never think of doing the show without you. That's right, each and every one of you. Head over to our Facebook page, tell us where you're from, and maybe we'll get you in a fan shout-out in a future show. So, without any further ado, I want to say thank you and good night. We'll be back next Thursday, same bat time, same bat channel, and hailing frequencies are closed. Good night, everybody. Night, y'all. Live long and prosper. All right, then. Everybody ready? Yes, Captain. Let's fly.